Welcome back to another edition of the JDD podcast, Ask the Investigator. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Friedman from the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm very pleased to welcome back uh, a featured guest, a, a true medical and expert dermatologist, the captain of compliance, the prince of psoriasis, Dr. Stephen Feldman. Uh, Dr. Feldman is unique in that he is triple appointed in dermatology, pathology, and public health sciences. Uh, he's located down at Wake Forest, um, and, and he has had an extraordinary career and, and just pumps out papers like nobody's business. And, and that's, of course, why we're here today, talk about one of your newspapers. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Adam, it's a pleasure. I forgot how over the top your introduction was. Well, you know, I got to keep it interesting, right? <laughs> so yes, we're, we're going to be talking about your recent paper published in the February 2018 edition of the JDD entitled Trends in Atopic Dermatitis Management Comparison of, of 1990 to 1997 to 2003-2012. Um, and that's interesting because I think, you know, you published a paper back in March of 2017, almost a year ago on a very similar topic. Uh, so I guess my first question is, uh, why the update and, uh, you know, what was different with, with this approach and, and this, this paper? Yes, the, the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey seems to be the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, it continuously measures uh, how people are being treated in the outpatient setting. And since almost all of dermatology is outpatient medicine, it's a great way to see what's happening. And the landscape for atopic dermatitis is changing rapidly. I think it's about to change a whole lot more <laughs> rapidly over the next few years. There's tremendous interest in this area, and so we revisited uh, the treatment. So, I mean, looking at the the methodology and, of course, all the data, that that's a lot of data. Any any advice for those out there? Who, who utilize databases such as this uh, in terms of going through the data and not getting lost uh, in, in, in all the muck, so to speak? Yes, you know, I, my, my colleague Alan Fleischer is a genius when it comes to this particular data set and others, and he's fabulous with the statistical analyses. And between us, we're able to come up with clinical questions that we can try to answer using the data. So I think, you know, if you have a particular problem in mind, uh, that, that helps give a lot of direction to the work. So knowing that you want to know how atopic dermatitis is being treated, um, I think it can help keep you on track. Yeah, that's such a great point. I, I think I remember the first time I utilized the services of a statistician, and it didn't occur to me to really give a lot of guidance and, to your point, ask certain questions. And if you don't, you just get back a lot of dribble, just a ton of random stats that really make really no sense. So I think you're right. You know, asking the question first and then looking to the data allows you to really organize it a little bit better and make sense of it. Yeah, that and, you know, Alan Fleischer has, he's uh, so particularly good at this because he can look at the data and if we make a mistake, he can reprogram it. If we see something that, tells us, oh, we should be looking at this too, then he can dive deeper without having to spend a week waiting to get the data back from the, from the statistician, telling them something that isn't entirely clear, then, them coming back a week later with not exactly what you wanted. So having a, you know, a, somebody who's a, a fabulous clinician, a specialist in atopic dermatitis, who's also running the numbers is, I think, makes for a a very productive system. Yeah, I'm having some some uh, jealousy here. That that sounds like a very very useful collaborator. Um, yeah. So so I think you know in, in this study you you hit on some very salient 
points and features and trends um, since since the last paper. Uh, the first one I, I, that stuck out to me was was the drop in utilization of topical steroids by by dermatologists. I think it dropped by about ten percent. Um, how, how do you account for that, and, and why do you think that is? Um, I suspect a, a drop like that could be uh, somewhat random. Uh, the uh, 10% may not be a big difference in, in a database like this. Uh, it could be that uh, with the growing price of, of generics that there was some uh, decreased utilization, although I would think that would affect more um, people filling the prescription than the dermatologist prescribed. i tell you what I could do, because uh, I think I've prescribed fewer things. You know, I used to, when I was in training, I would prescribe hydrocortisone or desinide for the face and then triamcinolone for the body. And then if they had some real thick plaque, give them some uh, fluocinonide or clobetazole for their resistant disease. Maybe give them a little cordran tape for some pyrigo nodule that they had and make the treatment extraordinarily complicated. And then when I figured out that people weren't putting stuff on, I was like, oh my God, I, I've got to keep things simple. And so maybe dermatologists are realizing, why don't I just give them some triamcinolone and then they can use it on the face or genitals for a few days. It's not going to hurt anything. They can use it on the body more. If they need a parigal lesion, they can put the triamcinolone covered with a Band-Aid. And then I only need to give them one thing and they'll be more likely to use it. And that could have caused a, a decrease in numbers of prescriptions. I, I love that uh, analysis. That that I mean, it, we have to be you know conscientious of keeping it simple because if we overwhelm them, they're just not going to do anything. And and that's where, of course, all, all your compliance work comes in. Um, the other part is is really being cost conscious and and really identifying problems with our current uh, healthcare environment. And I think that's actually that's part of the milestones that we evaluate our residents on is, are they cost conscious? Are they economically savvy? And, and I see that with my own residents, you know, we're dealing with AmeriHealth, Medicaid, that you try to limit the number of prescriptions and you get the most out of each prescription. So I, I too would like to believe exactly what you're saying, that we're, we're being a little more savvy as well as more conscientious of, uh, of compliance issues. Um, so that's a great interpretation. The, the, next, um, the next question I have is about antibiotics. And I was personally surprised that dermatologists were scrubbing antibiotics more than non-dermatologists like in the ER or family practice or internal medicine for, for atopic derm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, one key issue with interpreting data like this is that the patients are not randomized uh, among the different specialties. So there could be differences in the character of the atopic dermatitis being treated. So in the pediatricians and family docs office, they're probably selecting for mild disease, some, uh, some atopic dermatitis uh, in the anacubital and popliteal fossa, and there's just not a lot else going on, and they're giving a, you know, some topical therapy. Whereas the uh, dermatologists, while we do certainly see some patients with mild atopic, we may also be seeing those patients who have um, you know, hopelessly uh, super-infected disease uh, flaring totally out of control. And so we're going to be more likely to use um, more intensive treatment approaches. Right. And, and I think the, the third really salient and, and most probably most concerning um, uh, data point that came up is the use of antihistamines. And, and certainly that was outside of dermatology. Um, emergency uh, room physicians uh, were, at the were at the top there. Um, what, where do you think the disconnect is? Because I think there's been a lot in the lay medical press, in the literature, 
really pushing against these, especially in children, given their impact on potential development and interaction at school. Why, why do you think they're missing the boat here? Uh, I think they're, uh, you know, I'm not one of them. So I really have a hard time knowing for sure. So take this with an understanding that I'm not in their group. And so I don't know why they choose what they do. It, you know, I think even dermatologists uh, have been evolving in our use of antihistamines. And I think there's growing awareness that the data support that they're not helpful. And now we have guidelines that, that tell us, you know, don't do it. Uh, and I suspect that the non-dermatologists are just a little behind us in time. And we'll also come to this realization eventually. I like your optimism. Uh, yeah. You know, the other possibility is that uh, people are still using, when antihistamines are used, I think they are being used even by atopic experts uh, for the people who are having trouble sleeping and they're giving a sedating antihistamine for sleep. And to the extent that that's being done, it, you know, it, it's probably not entirely unreasonable. Um, and one thing I, I did notice that uh, something was actually left out from, from this survey uh, of, the, of the data and what's being done is, is oral steroids. And, and I think this has been a very controversial topic. And I think uniformly, we all agree in dermatology that, uh, you know, for the most part, oral steroids, systemic steroids uh, can actually end up being more harmful both based on their side effects, but also very often patients will rebound immediately after coming off of them. Um, why wasn't that included here? Um, and also, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the utilization of systemic steroids in this setting. Yeah, you know, we, we did have a group systemic immunosuppressants, and I can't remember if we included systemic steroids in that population or not. Um, it may just be a glaring error that you discovered and had you been one of the reviewers you would have had us be more specific about the inclusion of systemic steroids uh i'm not really sure um i i i, I don't have good justification for it i think it's helpful to know when we've done studies in psoriasis we've looked in a number of different databases at how often systemic steroids are used for psoriasis and we found that it's either the number one or number two most commonly used systemic treatment for patients with psoriasis. Um, and uh, I, I suspect there's a lot being used and it may not be entirely inappropriate. We see that in those of us who don't prescribe systemic steroids see, it, uh, see them being used only when they caused a problem. And it may be that that's only a small fraction of the time and our concerns about um, systemic steroid use may be overblown. So I think, you know, for, for me, and you're right, I think we see often the patients who have been given multiple courses, usually like medrol packs. So it's not even a real course, you know, because those short little bursts are not going to do a whole lot and probably make things worse. Uh, I mean, for me, I love your take on this. I, I will sometimes use systemic steroids and, and depending on how long the patient's been flaring uh, a protracted course as a bridge to allow a non-steroid immunosuppressant to kick in because those can certainly take some time cyclosporin i think is certainly quick but methotrexate mycophenolate even now with our, our first fda approved biologic dupilumab um, they don't work overnight and, and it buys you time to enable that patient as you mentioned earlier to sleep to engage in, in normal daily activities without tearing their skin off. Um, you know, do, do you ever use uh, systemic steroids in that, in that vein? Um, uh, yeah, I, and I probably, if somebody's just coming in and they're flaring from their baseline, I might 
on occasion give them systemic steroids to try to get them back to their baseline and hopefully under and then hopefully they would stay that way but uh you know i was uh, taught um to avoid systemic steroids i think people in real life practice probably use them a lot more than i do in academics and uh we, you know when i looked f for data on you know how how bad is it to give patients a kenalog injection every once in a while i just don't see strong evidence to support the the utter terror that that, that uh, we seem to have in academics for their so use. So I'm, I'm in the same boat. I, I love intramuscular catalog. So versus oral steroids, I think intramuscular catalog is one of those things that is highly underutilized unless it was part of your training and it was kind of the norm. A lot of people never really learn how to use it and, and also recognize how very easy it is to use and how safe it is to use there. You know, there's been a couple studies. One, I believe, went out about two years looking at HPX's suppression and potential for adrenal insufficiency with IMK, and there was none, um, probably because it's just kind of slowly coming out of that very lipid rich environment, especially if you're injecting in the buttocks. Um, I'm in this, I'm in the same camp with you. I, I think IMK is a wonderful option, a very safe option, and I would preferred over or steroids though of course you have to get the patient on board with the idea of getting two shots in the butt which uh isn't always th so easy but most after you do it they, they realize how how simple and usually how pain-free it, it can be but uh, obviously you want to do it the right way find your landmarks and, and inject in the right location yeah and if you believe that patients are not fully adherent with the treatments we prescribe you know the <laughs> they can't uh, take it out. <laughs> given, yeah, giving them a catalog injection certainly has a lot I, of appeal. From the compliance standpoint, I com I completely agree. Um, and, you know, and along those lines, I think it would be kind of fun to kind of go over, you know, how we utilize systemic immunosuppressants. Because, you know, in your, in your study, you show that no question dermatologists prescribe them more than non-dermatologists. And that's no surprise to me. I mean, we use systemic agents practically on a daily basis. Um, and we have so many to play with, which is really nice uh, that we have those options now, as opposed to even 10 years ago. Um, with oral immunosuppressants and severe atopics, you know, what, what, is, what is your go-to? Um, well, in adults, I'd like to go, you know, beyond oral and just go straight right. to dupilumab. But if we, you know, somebody forces me to do an oral first, uh, I'm a psoriasis doctor. I have so much comfort with methotrexate that, that that's what I, you know, would go to. And in children, I'll use methotrexate. And then I, I see my partners, the medical dermatologists, the general medical dermatologists who use a lot of Cellcept. And, you know, I, I might... I probably would do that after methotrexate. Yeah. yeah, I think I think both both are great options. You know, certainly from an economic standpoint, methotrexate costs pennies, where mycophenolate is quite expensive. I think there's some ease with mycophenolate. You don't have to do as close drug monitoring in terms of blood, um, the potential side effects. It's a little easier to use, I think, overall. Um, but yeah, I, I got my start with methotrexate with severe atopic derm well before dupilumab came out and. Obviously now it's out. If we can get it, which is always a struggle, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, I think methotrexate or mycophenolate are, are, are viable options. So along those lines, what are some tips you have for those out there who may have some struggle getting approval for uh, for, for dupilumab? Oh, I, maybe they should be giving me <laughs> their advice. I. You know, the first few patients I put, I tried to put on, I, you know, had a hard time getting the insurers to, to approve. I, and one in particular, I know it took like months before we got it approved. And then six months later, he switched to Medicare and we oh. lost our ability to give it to him. Uh, the, um, 
yeah, you know, I just say uh, keep keep asking, and if 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 you can show a picture, I think uh, I think people at insurance companies are human beings who really want who really take pride in in helping patients get access to good medical care, and they may just not know you know what atopic dermatitis is or what it looks like, and if you have a patient with severe disease, like kenified skin torn up with excoriations and, and you can get a picture of that to include with the uh, with the request I think it probably would go a long way if not with the initial clerk then at least with the the appeal to the you know medical person who looks things over with uh, the patients that you have on diploma they were able to get it for um, what what has been your experience thus far how how quickly do you find it setting in do you, you find you need to bridge those patients um, you know, are you carrying them over if they were on methotrexate or mycophenolate if they're on that? What, what has been your experience thus far? Yeah, if they're on systemics already, I would just add the dupilumab until they were under good control and then taper them off the other systemic therapy. It seems to work over weeks and patients seem very happy with the rates of improvement. Uh, I've, and I haven't seen the conjunctivitis in my practice yet. I probably just haven't treated enough patients. No, same here. I mean, I've yeah, it's it's interesting because from the the literature, it says it usually takes about a hundred to 150 days for for that to set in. And, and at this point, I have a decent number of patients on it. I, I have yet to see it. It's real. I mean, I know colleagues who have had it, uh, who've had patients with it, and and usually it, it's pretty mild and can be managed with. Uh, steroid drops or cyclosporin drops. Uh, certainly the keratitis is what we're most worried about. Um, I fortunately, knock on wood, have not heard of any of that happening, but that, that clearly would be um, of, of significant concern. That is a medical emergency. Um, so for, for those who are, who are listening, what, I guess what, what, what is your take-home message in terms of our current management of atopic derm, you know, where, what could we do doing better? What are we doing right? What, what do you want people to talk, walk away, having read your, the paper, having listened to this? Well, you know, on the one hand, what's coming, I think, is going to be like the end of a fireworks show. <laughs> you know, we had all these fireworks in the world of psoriasis over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. I think that's all going to get compressed into the next five years with regard to atopic dermatitis. It's going to be a fabulous, exciting ride. Uh, in terms of, of what's been happening, you know, still the patients with mild disease, I think we're going to get by with topical uh, drugs. Uh, we have non-steroid agents, I think, because of their prices and because I, I don't know that they're as effective as good potent topical steroids. Um, and because... The, the side effects of topical steroids are very much limited, especially given the poor adherence to them. Uh, you know, I think what we've seen is that topical steroids have been the predominant topical therapy, and I think that will continue to be true. I have a lot less enthusiasm for, you know, people, whatever topical stuff will come compared to the to the new systemics, both injectable and oral, that I think we're going to see in the next few years. You know, it's, it's a very exciting time. I completely agree. Uh, well, well, thanks. It's always a pleasure and always a lot of fun uh, speaking with you, Dr. Feldman. So thanks for joining us. And uh, of course, thank you all for, for tuning in and, and check out the next podcast uh, in the following month.